0: Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the Spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. Father, that's our desire, Lord. It's the desire of our life, but God, it's the desire of our church. And it's for that reason, Lord, that we open up your word to ask you, Lord, The king of the church, the king of this universe, Lord, to ask you who you want us to be and where you want us to go. God, it's our desire that we would be a people that magnify, glorify, and exalt your name. God, that this church would be a bright light. Lord, shining in the darkness of our world, declaring, Lord, that there is hope, there is eternal hope. Not in us as a people, but in your Son, the one who has redeemed us as a people and who is sanctifying us and transforming us as a people. And so, God, do a mighty work in us, we pray, this morning. Not so that we may be magnified, Lord, but that you may be magnified. God, right now, Lord, in the presence of your Holy Spirit, I pray, by the power of your word, Lord, a two-edged sword, would you pierce us, would you change us, would you mold us, into the image of your Son, God. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish this work. It's so beyond the work that any human can do, Lord. You must do it. And so we submit ourselves to you, Lord. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. You can grab your seat. As you grab your seat, you can take your copy of God's Word and open it up to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be in verses, in verse 17 this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, then the ushers are going to come to the front of the aisle. They're going to make their way to the back. You can slip your hand in the air, and they'll get a copy of God's Word into your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give this to you. You consider, can consider this our gift to you, so long as you will read it. If you're new with us this morning, I just want to extend a warm welcome to you. So glad that you're here. My name's Miles. I'm the lead pastor of this church. And we want to let you know that we love you, and we want to serve you this morning. So we've set up an area just for you. It's called Connections at the back of this worship center. We'd love to meet you thereafter. Put a small gift in your hands uh, and answer any questions you might have about our church. I want to talk to you this morning about authority in the church and the biblical call to be a surrendered people. Now, I'm really glad that at this moment, nobody's walked out already. Because the reality is, in our day and age, isn't authority a very dis- divisive topic? especially when it comes to authority in the church. In fact, I'm sure that you would agree with me when I say that that as a culture, we are kind of in like this authority crisis, aren't we? That there are multiple cultural and societal wars being waged all surrounding authority. Consider the societal divide that exists on whether or not we should trust authority. In fact, almost every one of us in this room over the past year, three years really, has been involved in this debate on whether or not we should trust the health authorities. And we're living in a culture where really we're forced to debate whether we should trust police authorities. All of these things put us in an authority crisis. Well, that's not... Only part of the authority crisis that we are in as a culture. Think about the philosoph- philosophical divide as we think about authority. Answer this question what, What's more healing to our society? What would be better for society, to have a government with more authority or to have a government with less authority? Well, really, your answer to that question is creates a political divide and really points where you might vote. What about parental authority? What makes a good parent? A parent who releases their children and lets them kind of go their own way? Or the parent who exercises their parental authority over that child? What about social movements? All these social movements that have been created in the last especially few years that really aim at authorities in culture and society and deconstructing authorities in culture and society. One more. What about globalization? What about the wars that our world finds itself in these days? And the question of who do these countries report to? Who, whose authority are they really under? At this point in time, you can agree with me that we are in an authority crisis. Some of you are really excited. You're like, this is going to be a really juicy sermon. He just brought up a lot of really divisive topics. Well, I don't want to talk so much about those As much as I want to talk about authority in the church and present for us this morning really a a biblical vision of authority, what it's meant for, and how it is to function in the church. See, this is the problem. As a society, as a people, we have never been more confused about authority and its role in our life than we are today. And yet, on the other hand, authority, the authority that God gives to his church, is central to the church's mission. You remember that when Jesus sent his church on mission in Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples. And what assurance did he give to his disciples? Well, he gave him this assurance, that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. See, critical to the success of the church, Jesus says, is that he has authority and that he has given it to the church. And so we find ourselves kind of in this problem where on the one hand, we fear authority and we don't know what to do with it. And yet on the other hand, Jesus is saying that if you're going to be successful in this ministry, then you must know what to do with the authority that I am giving to you. Add to this the reality that many of us, many of us are sitting in a place where we have been hurt by the abuse of authority or the misuse of authority. Maybe it's our parents who who just misused their authority that God had given to them as parents. Maybe it's even in the church that we've experienced the authority of the church instead of coming alongside us as a healing authority, crashing down on us as a damaging authority. And so the question for us this morning is, what do we do with authority in the church? And I want to read for us In Hebrews 13, verse 17, the counsel that we are given here, look at the verse with me. It says here, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, some of you are here this morning, are thinking, okay, how could he preach in this sermon, obey your leaders? He's going to really tell us that we got to obey the leaders. And I want to let you know that if there, there is anyone in this room who should be scared of these verses, it's me. It's not you. Think about the reality of this, these verses. There are three men in this room right now who should be like literally shaking in their chairs. Because the hard part of this verse is not the fact that all of us as believers are here commanded by God to obey your leaders and submit to them. You know what the hard part of this verse is? Is that your leaders one day are going to stand before the Lord and they will have to give an account for how they cared for those people that were placed under their leadership. If any of you are offended right now, you need to take your offense and turn it into prayer for me. Okay, this is scary for me. I wore a diaper this morning, just in case I pee my pants. That's how afraid I am right now. And yet, this is what we're being told, that there is a spiritual care. There is a spiritual life that is promised to you as a believer when you find yourself in a position to surrender and submission to the authorities that God has placed in the church. This is really what the whole series has been about. As we've walked through this series called The Church, we've really been talking about authority almost every single week, haven't we? We, We've talked about how Jesus is the king who establishes the church. He is the one who creates the institution of the church. It was his idea to gather together all whom he came to save, to gather them together into this institution that he calls The Church. And it was his idea to give that church authority by which they would be able to accomplish the mission. And so this is what I want you to understand. That that biblical authority, when it is practiced biblically, produces life. It promotes life. You know, one way that I could illustrate this is is by thinking about the sun. I mean, we've all thought about the sun. and, And the reality is that the sun is a very good thing, isn't it? The sun brings warmth. sun brings life in very many ways. And yet right now in this very moment there are two people in this room who are being absolutely blinded by the sun and they're cursing the sun. They can rejoice in the vitamin D. They can be filled with fear from skin cancer that they may be caused. And we have anyone in this row sign a waiver at the beginning of the service. They can't sue us The sun has good effects, and yet it can also have very negative effects. And that's much like authority. See, when we place ourselves under biblical authority, what what God is telling us this morning is that, that this is the place for life. And yet, in a fallen, sinful world, it can do great damage. And so I want us to understand authority this morning, and as we look at this verse, I I want to first maybe zoom out and think about authority together, and the first thing I want to think about together is our first point this morning. I want to think about the biblical nature of authority, that is divine. The biblical nature of authority is divine, and let's zoom out for a moment and and think about where did authority come from? Where did authority come from? And, And what I want you to understand here is that authority is a design of God, not man. There are some that look at maybe the authority structures in our world, whether it's the, the authority structure between an employer and an employee, whether it's the authority structure that's within marriage and family, maybe it's government. There are some that look at these structures and institutions of authority and they say, well, that's a man-made thing. And the, the reason why we see so much damage is, this, is because as men and women, we just haven't found the system that works yet. And yet, I want us to understand that authority in the Bible is presented to us as a design of God, not man. And so, flip back with me in the book of Hebrews to Hebrews chapter 2. Really, the writer of Hebrews has already set up this, this context for us of, of authority and where authority comes from, and he does that as early in, as in chapter 2 in verse 5. And in chapter 2, verse 5, the... The author of Hebrews is is making this argument that Jesus is even greater than angels. And he actually quotes from the Old Testament in Psalm 8. Look what he says in Hebrews 2, verse 5. He says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Here we are speaking in terms of authority. Verse 6, he says, It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the Son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than angels. And listen to this, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And here the writer of Hebrews is, is quoting from Psalm chapter 8, which is really a commentary on Genesis 1, to say the dignity that humans have is a dignity that is given to them by God, and that in their life there are things that are put into subjection to them. They have authority over things in the world you say, I don't have any authority. I'm not like a, you know, head of my household or I'm not a boss at, you know, my workplace. I don't have authority over anything. And, and yet the reality is that every one of us has authority. Maybe it's just the authority over your own thoughts. But the reality is that we all have authority over our own life. I was reminded of this this morning when my wife came into the living room with some clothes for my oldest daughter to wear. And she threw them to, that, to my oldest daughter. And my oldest daughter said, I'm not wearing that. She has authority in that moment to carry herself in a way in which she imagines she has authority to say that to her mother. She's in control. We all have authority, and this authority, the writer of Hebrews is saying, has been given to us by God. Now, I want you to notice, though, that he roots his argument, then, in creation, The reason why we all have authority is because God created the world. Because of the first four words of Genesis, the most important words in the whole Christian view, in the beginning, God. This is where all authority begins. See, authority is divine. Authority is of God because God is the one who created the whole world. He is the highest authority. He is the highest power. He is the one who spoke something out of nothing. He's the one who brought everything into existence. Any authority has been brought into existence by God, and therefore there is the creation of authority. God is at the top of everything. In other words, you could say this. Authority exists because God exists. And we are not created equal to God as creatures created by the creator. We are created under God's authority. And there's your first authority structure. But it's really interesting that as you begin to think about authority in Genesis 1 to 3, what you really find is that the first three chapters of Genesis are very much concerned with how God is going to give his authority to humans. Have you ever thought about authority in Genesis 1? First think about the authority that God gives to his creation and the fact that he makes Adam and Eve in his image. They are image bearers. And the way that they reflect God is that they're given authority on earth to be kind of like God. They get to live in the garden, and they get to take the things that God created and create other things out of them. We see this authority when Adam names all the animals. All the animals are paraded in front of Adam. It's this fascinating moment in Genesis 2. And what does Adam have the authority to do? God hands the authority over to Adam to name all of these animals. I'm sure it was a terrifying moment. Like, it's like giving the authority to your little toddler to name your family pet. You don't know what that pet could be named. And yet here, God, the, the one who is authoritative over all the universe, has given this authority to Adam to name these animals. Adam and Eve are given the authority of a stewardship. They're called to work and keep the garden. All these trees that God created, it would be up to Adam and Eve to cut them down and and maybe build a house and and start to build out culture and society and maybe cut down trees and make instruments with some and houses with others. There's an authority given to them by God. You think about the authority that God created in family. When God said to Adam and Eve that once they were were married, they would leave the authority of their parents and be their own family unit. And that even within that marriage, there would be authority structures of the husband being the head of the household. See, God is interested in giving his authority to humans. And the reason we find that is because God is interested in his glory. God is interested in his glory. That's why he created the world, so that we could praise him. And the intention of, of the garden paradise would be that Adam and Eve would live in submission and surrender to God's authority. And in their own authority, they would do what God had commanded them and therefore shine light on the goodness of God. It doesn't feel like it happens very often, but you ever walk into like a business and, and you look, just look around and things are being so well run? Like everything in this, in this, maybe it's a restaurant or something, and it's like the food's on time. It's hot when it gets there. You know, the waitresses are so kind, and, and everything is just amazing. Like this is a five-star Google review. What do you think in that moment? Well, well what you think is, well, this place must be managed well. It doesn't happen by accident. Like these people don't, they don't just organize themselves into this unit. There must be someone who is doing a really good job providing structure through this business, and in many ways, doesn't it kind of reflect the leader of that business, the manager, the owner, whoever it is, it reflects their glory, the goodness of the work that they're doing in that business, and so it is in the world. We're created to live under the authority of God so that as the image bearers of God, we reflect through our authority the goodness of God's authority, It's the authority. It's a design of God, not man. But I also want you to understand that authority is a necessary good, not evil. And so notice there, 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 a little word in Hebrews 13, 17, he says at the end there that to obey your leaders in a way which causes them groaning, he says at the end of verse 17, would be of no advantage to you. Now the opposite of that is that To obey your leaders and to submit to them in a way that gives them joy is of advantage to you. There is great advantage to you when you surrender yourself and submit to leadership. And so what the author of Hebrews here is pointing out is that leadership ultimately is to your advantage. It is to your good. Now it's very important for us to be real here and understand that As we look around our world, there perhaps is more examples of the sinful abuse of authority than there is of the biblical model of life-giving authority. That's the sad reality of living in a fallen world, and yet I I find it so important for us just to take a moment to ensure that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater here. To understand that God created authority and He created it good. It is not evil in and of itself. See, the reality is that we cannot escape authority because we all have authority. All of us, just like we mentioned. Our, our, our kids have authority. We are born with authority over our life, and we cannot escape authority. We need to understand, then, its biblical nature and how it was created by God for good and not for evil. I want you to see this, lastly, in this first point, as we discuss the biblical nature of authority being divine. I want you to see that it's a critical help, not a hindrance. It's a critical help, not a hindrance. See, to live under authority, to surrender to the authority that God has placed in our life is to our benefit. It doesn't hinder us. It doesn't slow us down. To submit ourselves to the leadership of the church, look what the writer of Hebrews says, is to submit ourselves to their care. Do you see that? There he says, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And so the question for us is: Who has God given to us, in order for our souls to be cared for? Who is it? The answer here is that you have. That if you are a part of a local church, you have been given leaders, and it is their job to care for your. Soul, to watch over your soul. They will one day give an account for the degree to which they cared for you. God created the church because He loves you. God created the church because He desires to care for you. And as much as we push away from the church, as much as we are unwilling to lean into the church and embrace the church, Is as much as we push away from God's care and are unwilling to push into God's care. See, the church is the institution in which God has created to care for your soul. And he has given its leaders to keep watch over our souls. And so to neglect this is to neglect what is necessary to life. You and I, as human beings, we thrive under authority. God knows what we need, and so he gives to his church leaders to watch over us and care for us. You know, my wife and I, we have a perpetual problem. My wife, I've mentioned this before, she loves to garden. She's got a green thumb. And I don't know what the opposite of a green thumb is, but I, it, it, whatever color thumb or whatever kind of thumb is, I have that thumb. Okay, I've got the thumb of death. I can kill any plant. I got one plant on my desk. I, it's a miracle, honestly, a miracle of, it's similar to the miracle of creation and salvation that this plant is alive because I water it like once a year. Somehow it's alive, but beside it is a pot with like a little wilting stick because it died in like two days, that plant. And so whenever my wife leaves, we have this perpetual problem of how are the plants going to stay alive? Because I look at these plants and I I say, you know, these plants, 364 days a year, they just stay alive miraculously. I don't know what my wife does. I don't know where she puts them. I don't know how she cares for them. To me, they just stay alive. But the day she leaves, there's something I'm supposed to do. I don't know what it is, but when she comes back, they're dead. She knows how to care for these plants. She knows how to put them in the places that they need to be that lead to life. She knows how much to water them or how little to water them. And just like that, God is a master gardener. He's the master gardener of our souls. He knows how to care for us in a place where we will thrive in growth and glory to him. This is the biblical nature of authority. It's divine. Well, I want you to see our second point as we think about authority this morning. And that is the prideful resistance to authority. To reject. The prideful resistance to authority is to reject. The very nature of this verse, the very necessity of this command, shows us that as much as authority is meant to be received, it is often rejected. The fact that the writer of Hebrews had to write this points us to a problem that was in the church where the church was really struggling to live in surrender to its leaders. And I want you to understand, again, sort of zooming out here, that rejection of authority is really the the core problem of the human heart. As humans, that is our issue. It it is an issue of authority. It's an issue of of not really knowing which authority we are to listen to and which authority we are to not listen to. And so think for a moment of Adam and Eve. Think about where it all went wrong in, in Genesis 3. See, Adam and Eve, they were given a command by God, And everything was good. They were given all all the trees of this garden of paradise, this garden of delight. They were given all the trees to enjoy. Until one day, living in God's garden, the serpent came. And what did the serpent succeed in doing? At at the very heart of what the serpent succeeded in doing was causing Adam and Eve to question God's authority. And So what does the serpent do? He comes and he says, (laughs) did God really say We've experienced this, haven't you? You ever, you ever worked at a place and, and you know, you're working there and you're like, oh, my boss is pretty good. And then some employer comes and, and starts like, you know, start talking trash about your boss and you're like, hey, you're right. He's not the best. And you start to question this authority. And, and this is what happened with Adam and Eve. The serpent comes and says, did God really say? And he says, you know, you know, if you ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you could be just like God. And you'd make a you know, the sense of that is like, you would make a way better God. You could, be, you could be much better at this whole God thing than God is himself. And so listen, don't listen to God anymore. You should, you, you should be your own authority. You should do what you think is most helpful. And from that day on, each of us as humans have struggled with authority. At the heart of our problem as human beings is this authority struggle. As we think about how we struggle with authority, maybe we could summarize it in two ways. The first way that we often reject authority is through autonomy. Autonomy. Autonomy is this this belief that, that life is best lived when I'm free from any external influences. I get to be my own boss. I get to make my own decisions. I get to do whatever I want. It's this worldview of autonomy that says that my life is best lived my own way away from anybody else. It's this worldview that, you know, authority is coercive. Authority causes you to walk down paths you don't want to walk down that might not necessarily be the best path, the path that leads to life for you. It's this worldview that says, I know what's best for me. And I am my best boss. And even as I'm speaking here, I'm sure that you understand that this autonomy is really the worldview of our day, isn't it? We live in a world that constantly preaches this message that the only person that should govern ourselves is you. That your only master is yourself. No one else has any say. No one else has any authority. I mean, it's as you think about this that you begin to make sense of some of the most critical issues that we face in our day. As we begin to make sense of the LGBTQ plus movement, it really is founded on this this worldview that I can do whatever I want. No one else, not even God, the creator, can tell me who I am or what I am to do. It's this elevation of the self. And yet, I want you to understand is that what the world views as freedom in autonomy is actually not freedom at all. See, the reality is that you cannot get away from authority. You will always live under authority, whether it is your own authority or the authority of God or the authority of someone else. You cannot get away from authority, And the reality of Scripture is, you know what it says about autonomy? It says self-authority is actually one of the most destructive authorities that you can submit yourself to. You want the surest way to destroy your life? Make sure that there's no authority that can speak into your life. Cut yourself off from every other authority so that you are the only authority that has a voice in your life. You are the only person that you listen to. And that will be the quickest way, the quickest way to lead you down the path of destruction, to lead you down the path of death. And yet this is what our culture kind of preaches about autonomy, isn't it? Like if you free yourself from this external influence, then you will find freedom. And I want you to know that there's no freedom there at all. There's only loss. I mean, you think about Adam and Eve for a moment. You think about that decision they made to be autonomous, to, be, to cut themselves off from the authority of God. And they were in a garden where God said to them, you can eat of every tree. They were in the garden of delight. It was the place of joy. And then what happens? The moment they choose to live the life of autonomy, they lose. They only lose the garden. They get cast out into the desert, the place of death. The only thing that they gain in their autonomy is death, and so it is with us. And in many ways, our culture is exalting the idol of autonomy. And you and I need to be so careful. It isn't the message? Isn't the message? Hey, you want to be happy? You need to be your own boss. You need to be your own. You got to free yourself from the nine to five. You got to free yourself from working under the man. You'll be happy once you free yourself from all these external authorities. My worry, my honest worry, is that many of us are treating the church from a place of autonomy. Many of us are trying to engage in the church from a place of Autonomy. Do you understand this? Do you understand that the, 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 the church that is driven by programs, the programmatic church, what do I mean by that? I mean the church in which its life is primarily just programs that you can come to any week, but you don't have to come to another week. It really feeds this, this sense of autonomy, it really begins to treat God's church kind of like a movie theater. Like when you sign up for a movie theater, or when you sign up to go to a movie, you don't call it sign up, eh? You can tell I don't go to many, many movies. <laughs> but anyways, when you sign up to go to a movie, they don't ask you your name. Well, if you bought the movie ticket and they said, name please, you'd be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's going on here? You don't need to know my name. Just give me the ticket so I can go in and watch the movie. And in many ways, what many of us want the church to be is this place where we can go and get what we want or we can drop our kids off to the programs that we think will be good for them, but there's no give back. I don't need to surrender myself to any sense of authority that might care for me. And it's for that reason that the, the programmatic church thrives today because it feeds this sort of inner impulse we have to not be known by people. And I want you to know that if what, if you're looking for like this church that you can live in and not be known, this church is going to be incredibly awkward for you. I mean, one of the things that I love about our church, like one of the cultures that I love, is that there are people in this church that they are like they are like welcome hounds. Is the only thing I can call them. Like they're just as soon as as soon as you know the morning starts, people come in, they're sniffing around. <laughs> There's a new person around here. And as soon as the service ends, they're bolted into the back. I'm going to catch this person. I saw one of the um, ushers on the welcome team almost tackle a person the other week <laughs> just to say hello. And that's what, I love that about our church. Like, like you understand, if you're, if you're new here, we want to know you. And we will really pu- we'll really push through all the awkwardness just to know you and to em- embrace you because we want to care for you. And we cannot care for you as a church if we do not know, for- know you. Autonomy will always be awkward in this church. And if you want to live the autonomous life where you can kind of show up to church and it's programmatic and it's just consumeristic, there are many churches for you. And I just want to let you know, like, biblically as leaders, we, we cannot do that. We cannot do that because we want to care for you. We want to know you. We want to love you. That's one danger of rejecting authority is the danger of autonomy. But the other, the other danger is really the danger of anti-institutionalism. You know, on one hand, some of us just have rejected authority altogether, but on the other hand, for many of us, in fact, I would argue in many ways, all of us to some degree, are kind of functioning in this anti-institutionalism. And that was really the problem that necessitated the writer of Hebrews to write verse 17. See, the, the problem in Hebrews is really described in chapter 10, verse 25. You can flip back there a few pages with me, chapter 10, 25. One of the problems in this church, let's start in verse 24 of chapter 10, is that the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, the problem is that there were some who were pushing themselves away from this gathering that Jesus was creating called the church. And some were neglecting to push into the life of the church and to embrace this church. And it was kind of like this anti-institutionalism that was growing in the culture of those who had once attended this church, this belief that they don't really need the church. I just—you just You just don't really need the church in order to thrive. And it is alive and well in our day. You will not Imagine how many conversations I've had with people where you know they say, Oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of God, and I say, Oh, what church do you go to? And they say, Oh, I don't attend church. It's just this worldview of I don't really need church in order to follow God. You you don't need that group of people. Me and God are good. I don't need the church. And there's two kind of kind of like two different ways that we can flesh out this anti-institutionalism. And the first is that there is this flagrant anti-institutionalism that's possible for us to have. It's this kind of outright, like that person I was just speaking about, that would boldly say, I don't need the church. And me and God are good. I don't really care about the church. Yet I want you to understand that God has always... God has always been immensely interested in the structure of his people. We talked about Genesis 1 to 3 and how much of Genesis 1 to 3 is God structuring his people so that they might carry out his authority rightly. And yet, as we zoom out from Genesis 1 to 3, we see that throughout the Old Testament, God is immensely concerned with the institutional authority of his people. That's why you read through Numbers and some of these books and there's so much about the lots and the lands and there's so much about different kings and how they led and and if they did well or if they did poorly because God is interested in the leadership that is given to his people. When we come to the New Testament, we see God's design for the institution of the church all the more clearly. We see that the church is given structure structure in which there are elders and deacons, and we're going to dive really deep into this next week as we talk about the role of an elder and the role of deacons. We see that there are whole books devoted to and written to pastors to help them in the work of leading the church. To being placed in a position of authority over the people that God is gathering in various cities. In fact, the whole New Testament, almost the whole New Testament, is really impossible if we don't understand that the church is an institution created by God because much of these epistles that are written in the New Testament are written to local churches. In fact, they were written to local churches and then. It was commanded that they be handed out to other local churches. See, at, the, at its very nature, the church in the New Testament is an institution which has leaders. It's a structure, an organizational structure designed by God. And I want you to understand that in our day and age, there are many who are rejecting the church. They're looking at the church and they're saying, I don't, I don't need the church. Me and God, we're good and I don't need to busy myself with all of those things. And I want you to understand that when, when we truly know what the church is to be, according to what the New Testament says about it, you must understand that, it, that to reject the church is to reject God himself. God created the church. He gave structure to the church. So that to reject this institution that he is creating to reject what is called the bride of Christ and the family of God is to ultimately reject him. And that's what many are doing. They're rejecting the church. And, and I, I couldn't imagine what it would be like for you. You know, tomorrow's Monday, you go into work and you say to your boss, hey, listen, listen, boss, I just don't really care for what's going on here. This whole business, you know, this you know, corporate thing that you're creating, I just really don't care for it. I'm not too interested in the business anymore. But listen, you and I are good. I'm going to go home. I expect my paycheck on Wednesday. You and I, were good. I don't care for this institution. I don't care for this structure. I don't care really for what you're doing, but you were good. I'm sure you can imagine the parents in this room, if your kids came to you this morning and said, hey, listen, you're authority. Don't care for it. Some of you guys are like, that was literally this morning. That's... You must have seen into my house. That's my life. See, in the first scenario... Obviously, you'd be fired. You and that boss are not good if you don't understand the place of the institution that he is creating. In the second scenario, like probably going to be serious beatdown going on with the parent and the child, isn't there? Like You just, you just can't do that. You, you need to live under the authority that God has created and placed you under. Well, this is the flagrant anti-institutionalism that I'm sure many of us, because we're here, don't have. And yet I'm worried because there also is kind of like this functional anti-institutionalism that can be alive in us, where we reject authority, but we kind of do it in this functional way where we're still in the church, but we're not really of the church. And I want to maybe suggest a few, you know, varying degrees of levels of this functional anti-institutionalism, and maybe ask you to reflect on this for a moment and ask where you might stand in this. See, the first is that we might be committed to the church but not attending the church. This is a reality in our day and age that there are people who say that they are, belong to a church, but they don't actually attend that church. I've been at this church for over a year now. And just a few weeks ago, I met someone who I had never seen in my life. And I met them for the first time. You know, I did all the language, right? I never asked how long people have been coming here because then every once in a while you get like four weeks and the person's really, you know, offended. I said, you know, I said, how long have you been coming here? And they said, oh, I've been coming here for years. This is my church. And I said, I've, I've never, I didn't say this, but it was a really awkward conversation because I had never seen this person once. This clearly was not this person's church. If you have not attended a church for a whole year, that's one definite way that that is not your church. And this is alive and well today, this, this idea that you can be a part of a church without attending it. And so maybe you're committed but just not attending the church. Well, the next level of this is that maybe you're attending but you're not involved. You attend but it's purely on a consumeristic basis. You come when you feel that it's right to come And yet you have not bought into the mission that Jesus has given to the church to go and make disciples. You're not serving in any significant way where where you're saying, I want to be here for the purpose for which Jesus has given to the church. I want to make disciples. I want to help. And so I'm going to serve, whether it's in formal ministry, like set up and tear down or kids or worship ministry or something like the greeting, ushering, one of those ministries, whether it's in discipleship ministry, I'm going to join a small group so that there can be a body of believers around me and into whom I'm pouring life into and speaking the truth in love or even just an in informal ministry where you say, this is my church. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I care for these people and I'm going to speak the truth in love and try to grow them in Christ. You attend, but you're not involved in the mission. Well, the next level of this is maybe you're, maybe you're involved, but you're not overseen. You say, listen, I'll serve, but don't shepherd me. Don't shepherd me. Don't care for me. Don't tell me how I should live my life. Don't try to pour your yourself into me. I'll serve the church, but I'm not going to be overseen or shepherded by the church. Maybe you are overseen, but you're not teachable. You're in the church. You're in a small group, but but there's just this sense of like I'm, I'm I could do way better than these people. I could be a better leader. I could be a better small group leader. I could be a better preacher. Which, by the way, if you're saying, I would say come up and feel free. Go ahead. (laughs) This idea of you're overseen but not teachable. And lastly, maybe you're teachable but you're not vulnerable. And you're doing all the right things but you're in this place where you're just not willing to expose your soul to the people around you that are seeking to care for you and and the reality of this verse is that your leaders cannot care for you if they cannot see your soul. And if constantly, week after week, you put up this mask, you're unwilling to, to, to embrace vulnerability in the church, you cannot be cared for. And so functionally, you, you are in disobedience of this verse. You're not obeying your leaders, and you are not presenting yourself to them in order to be cared for. And this is why, as a church, we push so strongly small group. Listen, small group is not the only way that you can be discipled. There are other ways that you can be discipled, but it does check the boxes of discipleship. It does create a place where you can gather in community of other brothers and sisters in Christ and embrace vulnerability in order that care may be given to you, that you may grow. Because we need to get to a place of vulnerability in order to be cared for. Last thing I want you to see here, the humble response to authority is to surrender. This is the humble response to authority. Look at the verb there in verse 17. The writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders. He says, submit to them. This is the call of all believers. This is the call in my life to obey the leadership that, that God has given to the church. Well, well, we ask, why? Why should we obey the leadership of the church? Well, look at what he says First notice that, that the, re, the the primary reason we obey and submit to the leaders of the church is not to puff them up. It's not so like they can feel really important. I want you to know like the elders of this church are not doing this so that we can get any sort of clout. There's not a lot of clout and respect in the job of being a pastor and elder of the church. You know, I'm not on the golf course. Someone asks me what I do, I say, oh, I'm a pastor and an elder at the church, and they say, oh, wow, that's amazing, that's really good. They try to get off the green as quickly as they can and get as far away from me. There's no clout in this. The reason why we obey is because this is the place that we get care. The writer says, for they are keeping watch over your souls. The role of an elder is a role of care. The reality in our world is, don't don't we kind of exalt the self-made man? We exalt the person who, who did it their own way. They didn't need the help of anybody else. My wife and I have a joke in our house. You know, I, I, uh, I don't know how to do much with my hands at all, but every once in a while I'll find the right YouTube video and I will religiously watch that YouTube video like 170 times and I can like put something together, kind of makeshift in our house you know, and, and fulfill all of her design dreams. But every time I do it, I spend about three weeks boasting about how I was a self-made man no one taught me how to do this. I did this myself. The reality is I watched a YouTube video for like 17 hours and it was only like 13 seconds long. I watched it 100 times in order to understand what I was supposed to do. But, but there, you get the sense of, like it's fun to boast that you did it yourself and you didn't need anyone's help. And, and we've kind of brought that into the church. And the reality is that it's not A biblical category. The self-made Christian is biblically non-existent. We cannot grow apart from the influence of other people. It is biblically impossible to do that. You can't grow by yourself. The only way you can grow is when other believers, Ephesians 4 says, speak the truth and love into your life. And by that word of truth spoken relevantly to your life, you grow up into him who is the head. You cannot grow by yourself. It's impossible. We are community projects. We are shaped and formed to Christ-likeness through the influence and rubbing shoulders with other Christians. It's the only way to place ourselves in submission to the care of the church. Well, We obey because this is the way that we receive care, but the second thing I want you to see is that we we obey because the leaders of the church will give an account to how they care for us. This is what he says, that We are keeping watch over your souls, the leaders of the church, as those who will give an account. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is they have a role that will not be fun on the end day. This is much like James, who says, "Not many of you should desire to be teachers, because with becoming a teacher, with becoming an elder, there is a great weight that is placed on the shoulders of that elder for how they cared for the people that God loves so much. Think about a church. Think about how much God loves you. We talk about it all the time, like God's love for you is so infinite that he's going to have some serious words for the leaders who don't care for his children well. Parents in this room, you remember the first time that you left your kids with babysitters? Maybe it was even people like as trusted as your grandparents. Like they verifiably have at least kept one of their kids alive in order for you to be able to give them grandkids. And you leave them with the grandkids. And I remember the first time we did that, you know, you're, you're constantly on your phone, you're checking in, are they sleeping, are they going down? You're giving the tips. You know, make sure you sing row, row, row your boat. Hold the third row. Sway left to right. Don't sway right to left. Baby will not like that. You care. You care. And you know, the first babysitter you have, it's like the equivalent of becoming the president of the United States in order to become your own babysitter because you care so much about your kids. How much more with God? He loves you. He desires your good. He desires that you grow. And he puts those who are in authority over you on account. There will be a day where we stand before the Lord and give an account for how he cared for his children. You know what that means? There's a great weight that the leaders of this church bear. I can't speak for the leaders of all church, but I can tell you that For Dave Locke and for Dave Grant and for myself, there is a great weight that we bear knowing that God has given us this role to steward the souls of these children to whom he loves so much. That means that leaders, leaders have a responsibility to lead well. There's a lot on the line here. We have a responsibility to lead well. The reality is also that leaders are not above correction. And that's really important for you. It's important for you to understand that that the Bible is not calling for here kind of like this blind, I'm not even going to ever question what they say, kind of submission. What it's calling for here is for you to surrender to the life-giving authority of your leaders, but it's not calling for you to do that apart from the influence of God's word. And so I want you to understand that even the leadership of this church, we are very open to being challenged according to God's word because all that we're trying to do at the end of the day is structure this church in a way that is biblically responsible. It's not this blind, like, you know, I'm going to obey no matter what. It's, it's this, in the ways that you lead me according to God's word, I am going to obey. And if the leadership of any church ever calls you to do something that is contrary to God's word, then of course your ultimate authority is God. See, the leadership of the church needs to be open to challenge. Leadership of the church is not perfect. Leadership of the church is sinful. And even in the most healthy church, the leaders of the church will sin. Can you believe that? And so there's great need for forgiveness. There's great need for compassion here, for gentleness here. And yet these are the leaders that God has given to care over your soul. The third reason why we are to obey is because leadership is exceptionally heavy. Look what he says in these words, let them do this with joy and not groaning. This is not groaning in the sense of like, oh man, I'm whining. These people are so hard to lead. I wish they would just make my job easier. I want to take more vacation, but I got to spend too much time caring for these people. It's not that kind of groaning. The groaning here is really like a heaviness of heart. It's a groaning that you really can't understand until you bear the weight of what it's like to care for God's children. Until it's you that in the middle of the night, like the elders of this church, you just wake up and you've got someone on your mind. You love that person so much and you wish they would lead into your care. You wish they would give, they would give you the opportunity to disciple them and listen to them. And yet these people are pushing away from that care. It's this heaviness of heart where you, you desire to care for God's people well, but these, these people are just unwilling to surrender to your leadership and allow you to lead them to the place of growth and life. It's this heavy-heartedness that comes with being a pastor. You need to know, like, up to this point, 32 years of my life, I had never struggled with sleep for a moment. I I've slept before my head hit the pillow. And in the last year, I still have not really struggled with sleep that much. But for the first time in my life, there's such such a care for the people of this church that I find myself waking up in the middle of the night and and immediately my first thought is, is someone on my mind in this church. And you know, in the middle of the night, I'm just praying for this person and asking the Lord to work in this person's life. And yet this is the weight that is given to the leaders of the church. It's it's a weight that's an immense joy. You know how much of a joy it is to sit front row and see God working in your lives? And yet it's a weight that is an immense sorrow because you also see the destruction of people's lives and you see the way that they push from the only source of care that they could possibly receive. And so the writer of Hebrews says to obey in order that they may do this with joy. Let me say this. Practically, maybe to our church. Say that, you know, one of the greatest joys of my life has been to be your pastor. And that there are so many in this church. As I consider your life, as I consider your growth, as I consider the way that you serve the Lord, so much joy is brought to my heart. I mean, I'm being, I'm being serious in this moment. It's, it's like a parent who, who their kid is just, they totally understand what it means to be a kid. They're totally listening to their parents' advice and instruction, and they're thriving because of it. And there are so many in this church that bring me so much joy because I see you thriving in your walk with the Lord, and I see you taking up the commission that Christ has given you to go and make disciples. And it brings so much joy to my life, and I can speak for the other others of this church, that they would say the same that it truly is a joy. Last thing that, last reason that we are to obey, the writer of Hebrews says that to do this with groaning would be of no advantage to you so that we understand that to obey in a way that leads to the leader's joy is of great advantage to the church. Listen, why, why do you think that it's a great advantage for the church to obey its leaders? I think this points back to what we talked about in the beginning. You know, the world is looking for a place where authority actually gives life. And we know it. not it so hard to find an authority that's not abusing its authority, that's actually leading to life? It is so hard to find that. And where in the world can we find that? You know what the answer is? The church. And I'm fully convinced that one of the most uh, bold proclamations for the gospel hope we have in Jesus Christ is going to be when this world that is divided on everything, have we ever been more polemic in our society than we have been today? Have you experienced? I certainly have and It seems like we're divided on everything. Any issue you bring up, there is a left side and there's a right side. And I think the world is watching. Where is there an institution that can look past all of these disagreements and find Unity. I think the answer is in the church. Ultimately, our obedience to this institution that God has created, it points to Jesus. It points to the one who did this perfectly. You know, Jesus came in surrender to a mission and to an authority. He came in surrender and submission to God's authority. And we're told in Hebrews, we're told that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He surrendered in every way to the will of the Father in order that we might have salvation. And now in our surrender, we model the one who surrendered his life to God in order to proclaim that there is hope in the world when we surrender ourselves to the authority that God has given to give life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord. It's not easy to think about authority especially when so many of us have been hurt by leadership and even leadership in the church. And yet, Lord, as we think about the implications of life, Lord, we have great hope. Or that you are leading this church, that you are the foundation, and that, Lord, you care for this church that you are building here in Newmarket. And that, Lord, you very functionally have created a place where the souls of your children can be watched and nurtured and cared for. And so, God, I pray that it would be our desire to build our lives on the authority that you have given to the church, Lord. Ultimately, the authority of Jesus, that we would look to Jesus and say, Lord, your will is my will. Your command is my command. I will follow your ways. And so, God, we pray this all in the name of your son. Amen.